0: Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host
1: Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode 221 of the Intention to Growth podcast. Today's guest name is Kent Clothier, and he is the author of This Shit Works, Three of the Best Strategies to Create Consistent Income in Today's Real Estate Market. Kent has built 11 businesses, flipped over 6,000 houses, and manages 6,500 properties over seven markets and soon to be eight. Ken is going to be sharing his journey to getting to where he is today and how he had three epic life-changing events, one being a near-death experience on a plane with his family, that led him to be unbelievably clear about what he wanted out of his life and his business. This clarity enabled Ken to shift his mindset and relationship with his business and enable him to scale his current company into a real estate empire without being trapped or sacrificing the things that are core to kent like family freedom of time and making an impact too many times we have people that think that they're trying to optimize only for money or only for scale and they're sacrificing other parts of their life only to regret it later kent has truly figured out what it means to be intentional however before his current real estate empire kent took a company from 800 million to 1.8 billion in just 30 months And after he eventually exited that business, which he's going to share a little bit about, he lost everything, millions of dollars and all of his friends. And Ken had become extremely depressed and stuck in a rut as he spent a couple years trying to figure himself out and reinvent himself. He finally got into real estate only to realize after a couple years and some really intense events that life was short and our time is a precious commodity that we cannot, no matter what we do, buy more of. He decided to become intentional about scaling his business in the right way where it doesn't completely rely on him and it's solving for the things that are most important for him and the things that he values most. The journey to get where he is today was not easy. To put it in his terms, he said you have to see the dark before you can see the light. I hope you can learn from Kent's journey so that you don't have to experience any major life-threatening situations before becoming intentional about who you are, what you want from your business and why, and how you're using your business to grow your business to solve the things that are truly important to you because you've put things into focus and you've become intentional about what you're solving for. If you want to get more help, don't forget to check out our Intentional Growth course and the course and coaching program that teaches you how to build a valuable business with the end in mind, just like Kent. Check it out at arcona.io. Go to the Education tab. You can do it yourself. Do it with our one-on-one coaching or join a virtual cohort that's coming up. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Kent and you can see the power of being intentional. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business.
0: Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that
1: combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing good, brother. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, just a little chit chat before. It sounds like uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Exactly. <laughs> uh, not only have you actually produced your book, which mine is still in this purgatory phase, but uh, I am I read the intro and I read now uh, a good part of the first part of your book, and I'm excited because it sounds like yeah, you've got a lot of wisdom which comes from experience and comes, comes from those uh scars baby <laughs> yeah yeah getting punched in the face yeah. so uh give us like the short version of you know your background and what you're doing now and how you got to here in your book and then we can kind of go back and unpack it
0: yeah yeah for sure so i i started like yourself i came up in an entrepreneurial family uh in the grocery industry my dad and I, my dad had grocery stores my entire life and then uh mm-hmm. when i was 17 he and i kind of veered off in the grocery industry in what's called an arbitrage business. And so we started buying and selling truckloads of groceries, uh, basically on the gray market, right? Where we could effectively, a manufacturer was either, you know, they've got excess inventory or looking to gain market share, whatever the case may be. They would go into some markets and discount an item heavily. We would come in behind them and scoop it up and buy as much of it as we possibly could. And then turn around, put it on a truck and go ship it into other markets where they weren't selling it at a discount. And that little business, by the time I was 23, we were doing you know, $50 million a year. By the time I was 28, I was running. Uh, he had retired, so I was running an $800 million a year company. By the time I was 30, it was $1.8 billion, and was the seventh largest privately held company in the state of Florida. And then as fate would have it, March 14th of 2000, I got into a run-in with my partners, walked out of there in a huff, pissed off, and decided I was going to go and uh, basically rebuild everything and, and do it on my own terms and where I didn't have partners, et cetera, and spent the next two years floundering around and trying to compete with my much larger former partners and uh, between lawsuits and uh, bad decisions, effectively lost everything over a course of about a little less than two years. And to say that was humbling would be putting it very mildly. Uh, but ultimately it led me into real estate, right? I mean, basically, I had burned every relationship, burned every bridge, burned every opportunity down in that industry. As like I said, I was, I was just floundering, trying to figure things out. And late night infomercial one night, watched some guy talking about flipping houses. Went to one of those events, uh, went in there, and quickly figured out that what he was talking about when it came to flipping houses was very, very similar. There were a lot more similar than a lot more similarities than than not, and what I had just been doing in groceries. And so uh, I gravitated to it, made a $1,000 investment. And considering I only had four grand in the bank, it was some pretty scary stuff. <laughs> and, after, and after two years of bad financial decisions, I didn't even trust myself to make that one. But it changed my life, man. I got, I got really into the business, got very excited about it. Um, you know, It's been 18 years now that I've been doing it and flipped over 6,000 houses, built a... You know, my family runs one of the largest and, and most successful single family home real estate investment companies in the country now and manages over 6,500 properties in seven different markets, about to be eight. And again, along that way, I kind of found what my real passion was, and that was showing other people exactly how uh, we do what we do, basically breaking down the processes, breaking down and making it as simple as I possibly could for just about anybody to achieve what they wanted to achieve i mean it, I, I feel very, very fortunate that i was I was never really passionate about buying and selling houses. What I was really passionate about was the entrepreneurial journey mm-hmm. showing people that stuff really can happen and so um you know so now we sit here today, my book is coming out, and uh you know I've got about roughly uh, i' had about sixty thousand students over the last twelve years of the education company I have about thirty thousand people that use our software every month and so Like you said, uh, the rest
1: is kind of history. It's one of those things where I never expected to be where I am, but I'm glad I'm here. I'm super excited, and you know the the thing that I've you know been wanting with this show over the years, it's just people that have done it, right? Like, I mean, it's so funny because Ken, I uh, when we were about to sell the business, I was going through who, what am I going to do? Like, I'm running this business, but then like I probably I'm like essentially going to be carving out my own job. So then I actually sat in a short sale presentation and yeah. I, like, I went to the rich dad, poor dad coaching, i dropped like eight grand on that. And like, I ended up getting detoured into now here I am on the opposite side mm-hmm. of working on, the, on the, the business side of it, but totally saw it. But there's so much f- um, fake stuff going on, you know, just a lot of oh, yeah. like, window dressing in yeah. the real estate and the fact that you've done it and what you... Say the name of your book because I'll say it in the intro, but obviously. But I love it. <laughs> book. I mean, the name says it all,
0: right? The name of the book is "This Shit Works," right? <laughs> I love it.
1: I love it, right? It's not fake. You do it, and
0: it works. Yeah, so, I mean, I, to your point, there's a lot of fluff and uh, and BS out there in the industry, and and unfortunately, it's it. This is an industry like many others that doesn't escape that, right? And. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that are the the dream stealers that have no problem selling all the nonsense and making it seem like it's a, a lot harder than it's gotta be. And we're all about keeping it very straightforward, very simple. This business is not easy, but I can tell you it is very simple. I mean mm-hmm. it is not it is not complicated.
1: So there's a couple of things that I, I think we can really dive into here. One is in, we can go in whatever order you want for the listeners. I mean, they're used to This um, but the the challenges that you went through when you're actually going through the business and the 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 challenges of your partners, and then you know just that whole emotional stuff of going through that and that that trying to reinvent yourself. I've had so many people on Ken over the years, hundreds of people that are just like they go through that and like, who am I? What am I? In your intro in the book, you talk about building a business around your purpose, and that's Mm -hmm. actually of our five principles in our framework. It's figure out what the hell you want. And right. then build everything else around it. So I'm curious about that journey. But then also uh, the the second part is the how you scaled it outside of you. You talked about trading dollars for hours in, in your book, in the intro. And I think that's something a lot of people struggle with, regardless of whether they're in a service business or they're trapped. And w- we talk a lot about this shift in mindset, Ken, of shifting away from annual incomes to distributions and annual income to long-term value creation once that shift right. happens it's about allocating capital and your mind everything's changes around that and then the third thing i want to make sure we touch on is what you actually do in real estate because i think i've got i could probably geek out with you on like what how that's changing with the pandemic and sure. money, monetary policy so, yeah, so let's, from, let's, just, let's just knock them down so the very first thing i was talking to you about is is yeah
0: i mean i i feel very very fortunate one to have the experience of building a uh, being a part of a building a wildly, wildly successful company, right? At a very, very early age. Um, And a lot of that had to do about being raised in an entrepreneurial family, for sure, right? So I was getting my PhD and what it took to work hard and figure out how to make things happen at an extremely young age. And so you know, when most guys my age, 22, 23 years old, was trying to figure out what they were going to do when they got got out of college? I was already running a fifty million dollar year company, right? All my buddies went to we like
1: your buddies, right?
0: Yeah, they all went to college and they came back and worked for me, um, and so I never went. And so that was a that was an amazing experience, but it, it also, you know, losing it and and ultimately being you know effectively run out of my my baby at that point was one of the best and worst things that ever happened to me. When I was in it, I had no idea, you know how fortunate I really was and, and what ultimately the outcome would be, you know, 20 years later. When I was in it, it was desperation. It was despair. It was a, a divorce of something I had invested, you know, 13 years of my life in, blood, sweat, and tears. First one in the office every day. I was I was the douchebag who took uh, so much pride in getting to the office at 5.30 in the morning, not leaving until 8.30 at night. Loved it, right? Thought, wore it as a badge of honor that I was the hardest working guy in the place and would, would drive harder than anybody. And it ultimately, you know, created, I was part of the creation of a really, really successful company. Now, doing all that is cool, but doing it at the expense of everything else that truly matters isn't so cool. And I wasn't, I was too young and naive and, and I was only a product of what I had, you know, of what I was. I didn't have any of the wisdom at that point. I was, like I said, I was in my twenties, was married, uh, had a young son and, um, Quite frankly, just putting it candidly, Nothing, nothing mattered except for me to continue to be successful. And I justified all of that with, uh, "Oh, I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it for them." Right? None of that. None of that is true. That, that's the story we tell ourselves uh, mm-hmm. to justify, you know, doing all this stuff that we do. But that, none of that is true. If you're just being honest, and I can tell you firsthand.
1: Well, and, I, and, I, and there's a couple of things in your book that I probably you probably said sh- shed some light on, like why you now have this recalibration. But I'm curious, before we get into the why you changed, I'm curious if you have reflected back, Kent, and said, why were you focused on that? Was it affirmation that you were looking after? Or I mean,
0: being, being raised by an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial father, right? Specifically, yep. that father-son relationship is what it is. I'm yep. a therapist, but I can tell you that you know that's, that's probably uh, as big of it as any, just trying to Make sure that I was doing right by my father and trying to trying to continue to impress him and and show him that I not only that I was worthy, but ultimately that I was better than him. And that you know, it's a huge driving force. And so, especially in you know, in a guy like me, entrepreneurial, you know, there's there's definitely an entrepreneurial chromosome in there that when you've got (laughs) it right, you know you've got it, and and it's just a driver. It's just down in your gut. You don't know why it is, but it seems perfectly natural to push harder than anybody else around you things is logical. And I would, you know, I'm that guy through and through and in your twenties, when that's being fueled, quite frankly, because everything you're doing is successful. That's part of the problem too. Right. So Mm -hmm. I'm, as I'm doing things, I I am clearly seeing the rewards the year, the business is growing, you know, double digits year over year, over year, over year, some years, triple digits. I'm making more money than um, most people make in a lifetime. I'm making in a year and I'm 25, 26, 27 years old. I've got all the toys, all the, you know, the luxury I you name it, I had it, right? The car, the cars, the watches, the house on the water, the whole thing down in down in South Florida. And so you kind of just become a, you know, you just kind of start believing your own BS. And so and you start feeding into this mythological character that you've helped to create. And I believed I was invincible. I believed that I couldn't fail. I believed that I was God's gift to this business. I believe that I and so it just you become that thing. And before you know it. Uh, and by the way, I don't I don't begrudge anybody that. And I, I don't even look back on myself and say I'm I'm ashamed of that guy. That I didn't I <laughs> didn't know me any better.
1: But is that and you're not ashamed of it? Is that because of where you are today? Correct. I, I
0: mean, I had then?
1: here here's the reason why I'm not ashamed. Because I had to be that guy in yep. order to appreciate the guy I am now. And I think you just tapped into and we need to capture that and and like savor on that because too many times when I've had people on the show, Ken, is they're too, they're past their prime or they're like 70 when that happens and they sell and then they're like, holy shit, I wish I would have. And I think you have some of your stories in your book that kind of share that. We're like, you know, as long as you got enough time to because it's relativity, we only appreciate what we don't have until we've seen the other side. Right. So I think it's really crucial. It's really,
0: it's really hard to appreciate the light without the dark. Right. Yep. yep, And so, um, and I had no idea that that was dark. I mean, I, to me, it was, uh, like I said, I was living a very big life. Money was not an issue. I, would, I had everything. Mm-hmm. The challenge of it was, is the moment that the, that the hiccup hit and we started going toe to toe and suddenly it was gone. And I walked out of there on March 14th. You know, My life changed almost immediately. I still had the money, but all the relationships, friendships, everything that was tied into that business. It, was a, it wasn't a divorce from one person. It was a divorce from 600 people all at the same time. Going into a massive depression, you know, not being, not having any place to turn, uh, when it came to, it's crazy, you know, isn't it? Do I go to comp- uh, and go toe to toe and compete against these guys? No, how? No, I'm going to go try to get some of their employees. Let me go try to get their customer. I mean, it's, uh, it's just a, it's a, uh, a cyclone effect that you have no idea that you're really in until you get all the way down to the bottom, and you're like, oh wow, this is, this is not good, right? And I, mm-hmm. I was in a really, really bad spot. I mean, I was, I was suicidal. I mean, that's exactly where. I was. I was in a very, very dark spot. I just wanted it to stop. I couldn't, I
1: was drowning. Could not figure out a way to get out. And Isn't it crazy too, of when it's like, it's it's financial, it's like emotional, it's relationships, it's community. That, there was a guy on my podcast, that I, he said, when you sell a business and your identity is that, it, it's like a surgical, you're surgically removing it. 100%. And there was a, a woman, she's got a PhD, in uh, in business psychology, and she said that there's something actually called role identity infusion, and it's just like uh huh, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean it it's, it was um,
0: yeah. It the trauma of it was was it took me several several years to re, to recover that you know emotionally, but like I said, it it put me in a it it taught me, like I well I'll back up. You know, th- there's a great uh, commencement address. By Steve Jobs to Stanford, right? The speech that's on YouTube. If, if nobody ever watched it. I would tell you to go watch this. But one of the things he says, it's extremely profound. He says, um, You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. And nothing, I mean, it's so true. Like at that point, I had no idea, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grasping the straws, just trying to figure it out. I had no idea how big of a milestone, a dot that really would be in my life. Now looking back, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't feel like that at the time, but when I look <laughs> back did. on it, I'm like, I needed that wake up call. I needed that hit in the mouth. I had never failed. I had never fallen down. I had never experienced any kind of rough patch. I had never been humbled, right? And so to get knocked down as far, not only uh, professionally but personally in that entire endeavor was was good for me. I needed that, right? I needed that humility because ultimately, like you said earlier, now looking back and the guy that I, I needed to get out of that headspace to become the guy that I've become.
1: What was the uh, hardest part about that, that part, that phase?
0: Um, the despair, like not understanding where to turn next. It's a really frustrating place to be. Like you're just grabbing at anything and everything. And especially when, you know, at that point you have to keep in mind, my, my experience was I'm not college educated. I've never worked for anybody but myself, right? I'm 30 years old. I've been very, very successful, but I've been in one very niched out industry, and so I was a big fish in a relatively small pond. Right? This is a five billion dollar year industry, and I'm running a one point eight billion dollar year company. You know, we are forty percent of the entire market. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm kind of untouchable. I'm un—you know—I'm one of those guys. Non-competes can't go here. Can't. Kind of feeling that you know, where do I? What do I do? Right? That, that's a really, really frustrating situation to be in. But. Like I said, it, it ultimately turned me and backed me into a corner where in that grasping for straw, you know, phase, I grabbed onto real estate. And once I understood something about it, you know, the, the basics of what, I, what, you know, some of the concepts that I, that I teach today, you know, I was off to the racing. I got my, got, I got my passion back and I was, I was running and I, and I ran hard.
1: So um, um, what I find interesting and I want to understand too is you... As you went to that, after you acted on that infomercial, and as you started to, when you said you got your passion, you started to run hard, you, you, were, you used one of my favorite words in your intro. You intentionally started designing everything around this, right? Right. And so what did you learn? And then how did you, how did you create, whether it was core principles, whether they were, they were articulated or not, how did, you, how did you identify what you were going to focus on? I was, uh, all of
0: it was circumstantial. I would love to tell you that I was smart enough to come back and say, hey, I got this big master plan. This is not the way it happened, right? What happened was uh, I was desperate. I wanted to make money. I wanted to get back on top. And so I flipped. Once I found something where that I could actually do and prove to myself I could do it, uh, I, be, I flipped on the hustler mode. We've all been in that mode as an entrepreneur. It's kind of the first phase. You got to go through it. So I became the you know the biggest hustler you've ever seen. I mean, I did 91 deals paid over a million dollars in my first 18 months in this business. Like I, I was crushing, but, I, but, you know, kind of going to your second question about two years in, I quickly realized I didn't own a business. I owned a job. And that was a real gut punch for me. Uh, I had gotten remarried and my wife was pregnant A little girl was on the way. And here I am grinding, you know, flipping houses. We're making plenty of money back on track, but The moment I stopped flipping houses, the cash register stopped singing. And that was a big, big aha for me. And it sounds very obvious now, but it wasn't to me. And so I became really, really dedicated to, I want my life to be different. I know when I go, I know I have the capability to outwork anybody and make things happen, period. That's just who I am. But I knew what that got me in my previous life. So I had that experience to say, well, I did that for 13 years and built an empire and lost it virtually overnight. And in the process of losing it, lost everything else that mattered to me. I'm not doing that again. So I had this fear over my shoulders. What would happen if I lost everything again? If I, if, it, if it all melted away, what would happen again? Well, the one thing I kept going back to is that, well, at least I know I'll have my wife and my kids and I can do anything. I've proven I can get back on top. So if I have the relationships but this core group around me and this extremely powerful bond then I'm armed with everything I need. They cannot take away my knowledge, they can't take away my drive and then they can't take away my family. Mm-hmm. I got this, right? And so I became very very intentional about I'm going to scale this. I'm going to put it in I'm going to put systems and processes and automation in place to do this, but I'm going to do this to where it does one thing. It makes me a better husband, a better father, a better man. It doesn't in any way, shape, or form, trap me in this in this business, because I'm trapped right now. And so I, I just went on a mission. Ironically, I, I kind of had an epiphany in that and because I became very passionate about how do I make it simple? How can I teach this to somebody
1: else to do? Because if I can't do that, then I'm gonna be a slave to this business forever. Well, it's so interesting too, like, in because I to I want to make sure you continue on your train of thought, but like a little comment on that, Ken is like, like, what you and I were talking about the annual income to long term value creation, where, where I see so many people, regardless of the size, too, like you're talking about. I mean, we're just pure energy and forcing and willing it into being is this. I mean, I grew up in copier sales, right? So you're doing arbitrage, but like same shit, right? Like you're just yeah. through pure effort, you'll get there. But at some point it's relying on you, your energy, your relationship. Like you said, you're, you're stuck. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs deal with that, but like when you shift, you're like, okay, well I have to invest to get out. And I think that's where like this challenge of like, you know, people's lifestyle, they've overdone the lifestyle with toys and different things. And they're like, well, I can't really invest or do I want to? And their like, risk appetite is different and there's no need to shift to make that investment like you're talking about.
0: Well, the, the problem in that or, or the challenge of that is that they think they are a business owner and they think they are an entrepreneur. And I would argue very seriously that they're not. That's what they, what they are is they own a job, which is fine, but it's real simple to figure out if you own a job or not. Um, just stop working. just leave, go on vacation for two months. And if you come back and there's more money in your bank account than when you left, then you probably own a business. If there's not, then your ass owns a job. And it's very simple. And if you don't want to own a job then you clearly have to understand that you're going to have to think differently, make different decisions and, and use leverage. There's no, there's no two ways about it. Leverage comes in all shapes and sizes, right? I mean, it's, it's leveraging other people. It's leveraging uh, financial leverage. There's, leveraging systems, operations, other people's wisdom, other people's insight, it doesn't matter, right? But if you can't you know, be honest with yourself and understand that the decisions you make today as this hustler, and that if you really just own a job, then you're going to be trapped there forever. You got to have a really hard conversation with yourself and like, I, I don't want to own a job. I want to actually own a business. I want to be able to spend time with my kids, do the things I want to do, travel the world and have more money come in than when, than when I'm you know, in the office. And like
1: um, any size company, too. Ken, really yeah, not exactly. you've probably seen big, big companies that are the same way, where they might have an executive team, but it's still the case. Or like a really crazy example is I've uh I've gotten some exposure into the Amazon e-commerce world. What you know, a lot of these Amazon FBA sellers, I'm like, they're literally essentially doing the arbitrage that you were right. doing, but right. like it's just on Amazon, and they're making shitloads of money. And you're right. like, yeah, just because you have three million in EBITDA, you have no company. Like you don't have a company. Like I don't know what else to say about that. And the goal is just like hopefully someone's gonna. It's like the the relay race, and at some point the music stops. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, and again,
0: there's nothing wrong with that. Right. You're aware of it. As long as you clearly, your eyes wide open. I clearly understand what I'm doing. There is. I'm not creating value. I'm creating income, Mm -hmm. which is two very different things. And I'm not building assets. I'm you know I'm making money and again, call a spade a spade. If you're doing that, you're, you're better than 99% of the people out there in the free world that have to go work for somebody else. And they are not in any kind of control of their own income. God bless you. You are killing the game. Yes. Nope. But, but there is a huge difference between that and owning a business. Mm-hmm. And if you want a business, then you're going to have to think differently. You got to get out of that mindset that, oh, nobody's going to do it as well as I'm going to do it. You got to get in that mindset, got get out of that mindset of You know, have any kind of risk aversion to investing in marketing, investing in systems, investing in operations. I mean, you've got to start thinking like a real, a a real entrepreneur. Somebody who's trying to build an asset, build real value. You have to surround yourself with people that are really smart. Which means you're going to have to invest in them, invest in yourself. Those things are very scary things for people to, you know, people whether they're joining a mastermind or they're getting a business coach or whatever. They 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 have this oh my God, you know, why would I ever do that? Why wouldn't you? I mean, if you had it figured out, if you had it figured out, you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be where you are. You don't have it figured out. asking the question, right? <laughs> right. So the very first thing you want to do is go find the person that's going to answer the question for you and is going to take you by the hand and
1: figure out how, you know, help you get to where you're trying to get to. It's really straightforward. So now that you're saying that, like what, going back to your, your where you are in that journey and you made this decision because super awesome insights by the way that was that was very awesome like what did you because you had did you hire a coach did what did you do other than like now you like you have this internal truth that you understand I basically decided that something i
0: had been doing in the grocery industry that when i you know going back to that story for a second when i had I was running, you know, my, the company was basically when I was 26 to 27, it was roughly doing about $90 million a year. And uh, we had a company approach us out of Boca Raton, Florida. I was in Memphis, Tennessee at the time. And they came in and bought our company. And when they bought us, it uh, wasn't soon after that they effectively threw the keys of the larger company to me and said, this, we want you to run our $800 million company now, right? And so here I am you Know a naive kid from Memphis, Tennessee, you know, born and raised in Dallas, but we lived in Memphis for 10 years. And uh, I, I like the Beverly Hillbillies. I go down to Boca Raton, Florida. You talk about a fish out of water, it was like night and day. And I'm walking in this door and was just confident and cocky enough and just full of, you know, what, enough to come in there and say, Look, this is the way we're going to start doing stuff now. And one of the things that I basically asked everybody, because in that business, the way that model works is you sell. Are you're selling um, products that are being offered to you every day by grocery stores all across the country. Hey, today we got a truckload of Peter Pan or whatever, right? And so everybody's effectively, all of our competitors, were are all competing with the same truck of Peter Pan. This guy sent it to 20 guys like me all 20 are picking up the phone and we're all calling the other same customers on the other end saying, Hey, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you want to buy it? What about you? Seven Eleven, What about you? 40,000 about- <laughs> peanut butter jars. Let's do this. Yeah. And so <laughs> if you think about it at a macro level, what effectively is happening is you are, com- it's a race to zero. Who can yeah. <laughs> afford to pay the most for that truck and who's going to take the least, and who's going to squeeze their margins the most and get the deal done. That's who's going to win. And that business sucks. And so I basically simple, you simply stated it that business yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I basically went out and said, listen guys, how about we go ask every single one of our customers that buy millions of dollars from us every week, if I could sell you anything at any price, delivered in any quantity on any day, what do you want to buy? And just work backwards. Let's just go figure out exactly what they would prefer to spend money on versus what we're trying to, you know, shove down their throats. And that very simple concept Took the company in 30 months from 800 million to 1.8 billion. Wow. Uh, because suddenly we were playing a completely different game. What we were doing was shopping and creating opportunities for our customers, effectively had purchase orders in hand, while our competitors were competing over the, you know, the same dog shit uh, that they're trying to sell to everybody. And then we would just weren't doing that.
1: Well, and I'm curious as you, as you go into like my, the third question I originally asked about uh, your business model now, which we can get there in a sec, but like cash flow has so much to do. I don't know how that, that model changed the cash flow of the business too. Because it didn't change you're... the cash flow dramatically,
0: but it, would, it created massive efficiencies.
1: Okay. Because uh,
0: that, that, that particular business, we prepaid for everything, right? So we basically had to wire the money for a truck, you know, fifty, dollars $100,000 at a time. I mean, we had days we were wiring $50 million, right? And you wire the money in, it sits there for 24 hours. We come pick the truck up, then we go, we deliver it to a customer and we get paid in 20 days.
1: Mm-hmm. So Nothing really. changed. But at least the mental difference, right? Of like knowing oh that you already, the, you already have the PO versus going. I bought this shit. From, a,
0: from an efficiency standpoint. I mean, we we suddenly became a machine. We became McDonald's, right? I know what every customer wants every day. I'm just going to deliver it to them.
1: Yep. Um, <laughs> way and, more. Way more efficient.
0: And so that was a was. And so you know, going into you know your question about what was kind of the big light bulb moment inside of the real estate space was when I realized I could do the same thing in real estate when I got really passionate and intentional with trying to put these processes and systems and efficiency in, in the business where I didn't have to be there, I needed to make it simple. And there's and not anything is much simpler than if I just know exactly what somebody wants to buy and I just go create it. I mean, it get, that gets pretty simple. Uh, most people are taught, just go quote unquote, find a deal, right? Let me, go, let me go find a house. Somebody wants to sell their house at a discount. and Then magically, when I go buy it at a discount, Uh, and I go put it out on the internet, somebody's going to come to me and say that they're willing to pay my price. And that's basically what is taught in this industry still today. right? And I don't teach that. That's not my philosophy at all. I teach what's called reverse wholesaling. And basically what we do, what I figured out in that process is that the very first step in that is I needed to go find out who all the customers really were. And I did not know at the time that roughly 35% of all real estate transactions in the single family home market were being done with cash. And this has been a statistic that's been around for 20 years. Like, so, and it only, goes, it only grows through a recession, right? When credit tightens up, cash buyers just become a bigger percentage of all the transactions. And so as fate would have it, this was like 2005, 2006, I, I figured out that cash buyers really mattered. And I went down to the county clerk's office in Broward County, Florida, Uh, And started figuring out that if I would go and look at all of the transactions that had been uh, recorded the week before, all the all the all the deeds that had been transferred, and if I could find the deeds where there was not a mortgage recorded, well, then the only way that they could have paid for that deal was through cash. Mm -hmm. And so I started creating a database, and I started marketing to them, and I started saying, "If I could sell you anything at any price in any market, what do you want?" And it just worked. Before I knew it, I had hundreds of investors that I just became this guy that would, Hey, I know you want to buy this house for two uh, houses like this for $250,000 in this neighborhood, three bedroom, two bath, 2,200 square feet. You can rent it for $3,000 a month. So my job became real simple. If I know you want to buy 10 houses like that the next 30 days, well, I'm just going to go market like crazy in that neighborhood and go find something that's less than $200,000, right? Because if I can pick it up, I'm going to make the spread. If I can buy it for 150, you're telling me you want to pay two? I'm going to make that 50 grand pop over and over and over. And that became the beginnings of, I mean, I was highly motivated to spend time with my daughter. I was highly motivated to spend time with my family. I, was, uh, I wanted to create something that was any I could teach anybody to do. and It doesn't get much easier when a, a cash paying customer that wants to buy 10 houses at a time for investment will sit there and tell you, I will pay this price in this neighborhood, this many bedrooms, this many bathrooms. It's pretty straightforward business from that point forward, right? Was and,
1: it the people to, that were willing to sell?
0: Well, now, I mean, we've made that infinitely easier. At the time, I already had that piece figured out, right? Because what I had realized, keep in mind, I'd already been flipping houses for about three years or two years when this was going on. I knew that if I focused on people that were in tough situations, that I could solve their problem. And I'll give you an example. There's, unfortunately, nobody gets out alive every single one of us is going to die, right? And so believe it or not, when people die and their house passes through their heirs, their heirs in many, many, many cases are highly motivated oh, to get rid of it, right? Give me the money. Give me the money, get rid of the house. We need to split the cash between all the heirs, the kids and whatever else. And so I started to focus on, you know, anybody that had recently passed away. Sounds kind of morbid, but man, not hard to look in the paper and figure that out. Any divorce filings, uh, anybody that was behind on payments. I started figuring out that I could use data keep in mind, this was 15 years ago, right? (laughs) Yeah, I could figure out that I could use data to figure out where people were in certain situations and I would market to them using direct mail to figure out, to get them to pick up the phone and call me. So now I had both pieces of the puzzle. I had a ravenous cash buyer database sitting over here and I knew exactly how to go create the deals and the business exploded. Talk about scale. I mean, we went from 100 to 300 houses virtually overnight. When the recession hit, uh, the Great Recession of 2008 to 2011, most of my competitors got completely ran out of the business. As did most real estate investors. Our business only doubled and tripled through that because I didn't need banks. You know, I'm sitting, I'm serving up to people who, who cares about credit? Didn't even matter. And so that was a lucky break right there. That's kind of what ultimately put me into where, you know, I, you know, the training and coaching and masterminds and software, all those businesses came out of that moment right there because you know, yeah. people were like, man, whatever you're doing and you're so successful through the recession, can you please teach us? Right. And, and nothing I'd ever
1: considered. So can, when you, when that happened, and so when you go from hundred to 300 houses and you have this uptick of volume, what did you do to scale the operations then? So like, I mean, because you said your motive was to spend time with your wife and your daughter to have a more you know, integrated entrepreneurial life. What did you do to, to, to systematize what you were doing?
0: Well, it was, it was a family ordeal, first off, right? So my family at this point, what I figured out that I was flipping houses down in Florida and I was really successful at it, wholesaling these houses, right? What we also started to figure out is, as the market started tightening up, we could sell to cash investors who were looking for a place to put their money to work. I mean, when when the market's doing this, mm-hmm. uh, this is slow and steady looks pretty looks pretty sexy, right? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and so, um, I started bringing investors back into Memphis, Tennessee. Believe it or not, right? And so, my dad was back in Memphis, Tennessee. I started bringing investors back there. And we started selling them cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, and ultimately managing those properties, managing the whole thing. And like I said, you know, now we manage six thousand five hundred houses for our investors. You know, fast forward fifteen years later, and so we did all that through people and through organic growth. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like we went and wrote some software program. We just knew that if all else fails, get people that really are passionate about your mission. Mm-hmm. Um, not, about, not about the job, right? Not a warm body. I want somebody who believes as strongly as I do in what we're trying to accomplish. And it was, and by the way, the mission was very simple was we want to help people create real wealth and real estate and we make it easy for them. I want to solve all their problems. I want to, want to go buy a property. I want to be able to serve it up to them on a silver platter. I don't want them to have to do anything to get the outcome they're looking for. And so uh, how did we do it? We did it through, through people. And then eventually uh, through systems and automation, and they, you know, now you look at where we are today. It's a uh, an amazingly successful business that has all the, you know, the the makings of 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 what you would think from a corporate kind of yep. entity now. But it wasn't like that when we started. It wasn't even close right. to
1: that, right? What were some of the the like? I, you know, have you ever read the book, the goal and talk about constraints? Um, it's a manufacturing, book. go like, all it is like you, you always are focusing on the biggest bottleneck. Cause when you open that up, you'll find the next bottleneck, mm-hmm. you know, people and systems and automation, you kind of referred to those three. And was there like big ahas or like when you did something, whether it was intentional or not, where you're like, holy shit, did that open up like the ability to do bigger volume?
0: Um, well, I've experienced it you know I've built eleven companies now, and I can tell you that in all of them I'll give you my answer based off of all of them right yeah, yeah. Not, not on one and so probably the biggest ahas that I've had through all of my my companies has been I am the bottleneck first off, right um, and so when I started hiring people that were a lot smarter than me, it changed everything. I think most people when they start hiring for one reason or another they think they're hiring for like you know, McDonald's, they're they're trying to find the lowest common denominator to put behind the cash register. And that is just not what you do if you're trying to scale a business. You want to hire people that scare you. You want to hire people that, that it's uncomfortable to pull the trigger on, that you're going to have to compensate well, and they're going to come with a a big resume. They're going to come with a lot of uh, knowledge and wisdom, and they're going to challenge you and to push ahead. That was a huge deal for me being the kind of individual that I am. When I started hiring people that were really smarter than me, it just, my, everything changed for me. Everything.
1: How did you get over that? Do you have any example or a person that you That's have?
0: getting over, just getting over myself, putting my ego to the side, which is challenging. Um, but understanding that I, I say this a lot and, and it's just the way I see the world. You get a choice every day. You get to focus. You can either focus on the opportunity or you can focus on the obstacle and if you find yourself hesitant on things, you're probably in all likelihood focused on the obstacle. And then in that particular case, the obstacle was my ego, my pride. It was me basically saying, well, yeah, but I can't do this because then they're not going to do X, Y, or Z, right? And the opportunity, when you back, take a step back and realize, one, now I'm building something that is potentially sellable. Now i have got people that are highly trained in driving the company without me. Now I have the opportunity to go spend more time and, and with my family and friends. Now I get to go and travel the world and collect moments with my kids that I could never get back right that opportunity is much greater than the obstacle so it's again pushing the ego to the side and forgetting about I, I don't I don't need to be the CEO I don't need to be the guy I I, I have no problem being the shareholder behind the scenes It's just getting rich mm-hmm. um, no problem and so
1: in that it, it, out of the 11 companies and out of the people that the key the key employees I went through this I know a lot of people I mean I've seen it so many times did you get to the point where like did any of those people that scared you that asked for big comp plans, did you ever give some sort of equity? Because like there a the, couple couple questions out of this, Ken, is like, you know, there's a point where like, okay, regardless of whether you're a hundred grand in cash flow or millions of dollars in cash flow, that next level of people, they usually understand finance like you and I are talking about. They're going, okay, Ken, got it. But guess what? I understand what this is worth. I understand the future value, what I'm going to create. How is this going to work? So either they understand it and they're asking for it, or you you can't afford them, so then that equity upside becomes right. a way of making it. Did you have I've an-
0: done it in the last two or three companies I've done, i've I've, I've definitely done that in my executive team and uh, allowing them to vest over three or five years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Never huge chunks of equity, right? You're talking about single digit percentage points, but it ties them closer to me. I remember where I was, and the reason why I ultimately walked out of that company, you know back in the day was because it was all over equity. And so I want people to want to be here, and I want to compensate them well. If I'm compensating them well, and, and they have goals and objectives that they're trying to achieve personally, and they can do that through my company, that's a good, that's a good place for me, right? Mm-hmm. I think probably more than that, what people have attended, at least in my experience, what I've seen, what people struggle with is... You know, giving up the control, giving up, you know, not empowering the people, having to micromanage people, sitting over their shoulder, not allowing, when you hire better people than you, that's that's just not even a, it's, it's impossible to do that because they won't allow it, right? You know, if you hire, they're, they're not going to let you micromanage or you're, you're going to run them out and you're going to be much worse off for it. So that's a, if you find yourself where you feel like you need to have your thumb on everybody, then that's a clear indication that you don't have the right people around you, at least in my opinion. I'm um, like, capable of letting the
1: right people come around.
0: Yeah, yeah. You one or the other, right? Either way, you're losing. Yeah, yeah. Totally agree. And so it's a that was a huge, huge aha for me in my life when I understood that completely um, and embraced it and decided that that would be the way that I would start building was just surrounding myself with wildly expensive but worth it people. Right, people that brought so much value that by the time they were done in their first year or two years. Or uh, we got to that place. I should say done, but by the time we got to that place, um, the investment seemed silly. Yeah, seemed did, cool.
1: you, did you ever have any of those people where it didn't work out? Of course. <laughs> Thank Are you. for the real... <laughs> that was, uh, Yeah. How, why didn't it work out, and what ended up happening?
0: I mean, look if you if you're not if you don't run into challenges in your business, including hiring and training and firing challenges, you're just not trying hard enough. Right? you're not taking enough you're not taking enough swings yeah i mean as i've gotten older have we put you know systems and hiring processes in place to try to weed out any of that kind of stuff i mean we use personality tests and profile tests to understand exactly who we're trying to put in the right seats at the right time i mean we do everything we can to hedge but the you know it is what it is it's definitely going to happen at some point we all are Unique creatures. I'm extremely passionate. I'm extremely driven. I'm, I know what I'm trying to accomplish in my life. I'm not necessarily the easiest guy in the world to work for. If you're not the right person inside of my organization, if you know, here's, I'll share this with you too. One of the most valuable things that I learned, probably about ten years ago, was to get extremely dialed in on what I actually stand for, what I stand against why I'm doing what I'm doing and what I really, really believe in so passionately that I'm willing to go to, you know, go to the mat for it, right? And learning to express that in everything I do. So my core values are so ingrained in just my personality, right? So if you see me online, you see me on videos, Facebook, YouTube, whatever the case, it's real easy to understand what my style is. It's real easy to understand that I uh, what my delivery is gonna be. It's really easy to understand the way that I'm just kind of I don't believe in sugarcoating things. I just want to give it to you. I just want to tell you exactly, I'm, I'm driven and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to drive you. Why that was so powerful for me is because what I started to realize is that whether it's my customers, whether it's my partners, whether it's my colleagues, employees, whatever, if I'm putting anything else out there, then I'm not being authentic. I'm attracting people to me that don't understand who I actually am. And so it's a major rub when somebody comes behind the curtain, they realize that, oh my God, you're not who I thought you were, right? And so about 10 years ago, I had a mentor break it down for me because I used to be a guy, you know, when I got into this space and I, was, and I was really good at teaching people how to do this, of course, now all of a sudden, I become a national speaker. I'm all over the country and I'm getting on other people's stage and Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all this list. And I'm suit and tying it all day long, you know? And I'm watching every word I say. I'm not, I don't use any foul language. And by the way, none of that is who I am.
1: <laughs> the only reason i'm laughing is because i can relate to that so much <laughs> yeah, that's not who i am right i i am a 50 year
0: old guy that lives 500 yards away from my office in Jolla, california i ride a skateboard to work i wear flip-flops every day i i cuss like a sailor i tell you exactly like it is and i quite frankly if you don't like me i don't give a shit and so <laughs> That's who I am, and so you can imagine when somebody's coming into my world and they think I'm this suit and tie button up guy, and they really get behind the scenes, it's oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's it doesn't work. And so I ditched it. I was like, if you want me to speak and you want me to come in, this is how it's going to look. This is who I am, and if you have a problem with it, then don't invite me. And I started communicating like that everywhere, and and, and it took so much pressure off of everything in my world. Like I'm unapologetic about who I am. I'm too old to care anymore, and so. What happens, you know, back to what I was telling you is like, when I'm, when people come into my organization now, they know they are very, very, very passionate about being a part of our world, our mission, what we're trying to do. And they, they are as they care about my company as much as they care about you know, themselves. And because it's authentic all the way through, it's just, they've seen it the whole way. And when I'm absolutely, I don't care about doing that and pushing on because the way I see it, I'm winning either way. Either you're going to be attracted, wildly attracted, to the best version of me, who I really am, or I'm absolutely going to repel you from the very beginning, and you were never going to do business with me anyway. So who
1: cares? Let's just get it over with, right? And and it's not an arrogance either. I think it's such just such a it's a it's a it's just setting good expectations, right? I mean, everybody wants that. It's about time. That's you know what it is. It's
0: about time. I don't don't. want to waste yours. And I don't want to waste mine, right? I mean, it's my my motto is the time is now. It's on my wrist. I don't wear a fancy watch. I wear this silly wristband I have for ten years, and you know, I'll be damned if not every time I look at my wrist, that bitch is right, right? It's tattooed, tattooed on my arm. It's on all over the all the offices. I believe in making the most out of every single minute. I don't want to waste one minute of your time or my time on nonsense. That's not in any, you I'm not bringing value to your life. You're not bringing value to mine. It's not arrogance. It's nothing else. It's just that I clearly understand the value of time. How did you get
1: that clearly convicted that this is a core principle of yours? Because
0: one, losing a business, right? And realizing how much time I had wasted, uh, that moments I could not get back with my son. Right. Uh, and things that I, that I placed value on That I could, regardless of how much money I made, I could never buy it back, and that was very frustrating for me. And that if I had to do anything over again, that's what I would have done. Luckily, I got a second lease on life, and so my two daughters are, you know, the benefactors of that. Right? I mean, I soak up every moment of them, but I can't get that back with my son. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I had my mentor, my uncle, uh, who was, you know, one of the most amazing men I've ever met, and he was a very successful executive in the travel industry. Uh, and had tens of millions of dollars uh, when he retired and had worked his entire life traveling the world away from his family, away from his kids, doing everything to go build his empire. And then when he retired, shortly after he retired and kind of finally reached this plateau, he's like, finally, I'm going to settle down and I'm going to start soaking up life. He got diagnosed with cancer. And you know, a few months, he suddenly was about to pass away. So I drove from delray beach florida to daytona beach florida and my mom is on the phone telling me you need to get here and your uncle is mind you he's 60 years old that's it yeah calling me and, and they're saying you know he's hooked up to all the ventilators and everything he's gone into the hospital with pneumonia he's definitely going to die and he's asking for you you need to get here and so i'm driving as fast as i possibly can down the florida turnpike come in and i'm running down the hallway, like they're on the phone, like it's it's now, it's now, it's now. Get here, get here, get here, get here. And come into that room and see him all hooked up, just a shell of this giant of a man that i had known my whole life and who had mentored me in business and in life in general. And watching him write out his last words on a whiteboard to me, a little handheld whiteboard and basically say, I just wish I had more time. And that hit me like a ton of bricks to understand that Everything, he embodied everything that I thought I wanted to be. He was super successful, was so well-regarded in his industry. There's not anybody that could say one bad word about him. The only downside is he'd spend a ton of time away from his family going and doing what he was passionate about. And all that money, tens of millions of dollars in the bank, the only thing he wanted, he couldn't buy. Didn't matter. He could have he said, I'll give you $30 million right now if you give me 24 hours and it ain't gonna happen. And that was a huge, huge hit for me. And, you know, shortly right after that, probably about within six months of that, maybe eight, I happened to be on an airplane flying um, from back from an event from Memphis, Tennessee, back down to West Palm Beach, Florida, and uh, connected through Atlanta. And my wife and my new young daughter, who was five at the time, uh, had uh, flown up to basically spend the weekend with me as I was putting on this live event. Uh, and because we booked our flights on different itineraries, they were seated uh, apart from me on the plane. I'm sitting in 19A. They're in 26E and F. And as we're flying from Atlanta to West Palm, um, we're probably 45 minutes into the flight, maybe an hour, and the plane completely fills with smoke. And immediately, all the buzzers come off. The stewardess comes on and says, "You know, is losing her mind, quite frankly." Exactly. The whole little thing where they do the hands—none of that shit happened. This was straight up like. She was freaking out, right? Um, <laughs>
1: Those pictures don't do justice, right? Yeah.
0: And so she was uh, completely freaking out on the plane. Crew, please return in your crew. You know, oh my god, oh my god, this kind of stuff. And so you can imagine the panic that that created in the, in the plane. Uh, the buzzers are going off. The masks are dropping. This entire plane inside of the plane is filled with smoke. We go into a nose dive because you know I didn't. I, I know this now. I didn't know it then. At the time that they do that, if they think the plane is on fire, to try to put out a fire. Mm. And they di- diverted us to uh, Tampa, Florida to make an emergency landing. You know, the captain comes on and tells us, when I tell you, when the crew is going to tell you to brace for impact, brace for impact, brace for impact. So this is a 15 minute ordeal that I'm summing up in about 30 seconds. Which the it was, like- it was one of the most frightening things I've ever had. My, everybody's screaming, but the only person I can hear screaming is my five-year-old daughter screaming for daddy and I can't get to her right? There's no way I can get back there to console her in any way. I'm going to hear my my daughter scream in potentially her last moments. I'm looking at my wife making eye contact, eye contact, saying goodbye. I'm filming a video to my son that will be hopefully if somebody finds my phone, they'll know that I'm he's thinking this. is So when I tell you that this is real, this is real. I mean, it doesn't get any more real. And of course, obviously we're talking. And so fate would have it. We did make an emergency landing. We got on the ground. They ended up getting the plane, the fire uh, that, that was in the baggage compartment. They didn't understand what was going on. They got us off the plane and we drove. I never got back on that plane, although they wanted us to get back on it. I was like, that's not happening. Got on it, got rid of the car and you're drove. Right. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, those are three profound, life-changing events, right? Epic kicks, hits to the face where you're like, wait a minute. I can work my ass off and lose everything in a minute, right? Why not build something that matters I can work my ass off and I will never be able to get back the time that I've wasted away from my family and friends and doing the things that actually matter. So, not only can I lose it and it be gone, but I can build it and some tragedy hit me and I, it's all been the, at the expense of my family. It's never gonna happen. And, and then, or I could be on an airplane at 30,000 feet and my life be over in a second and I still couldn't get any of it back. So, I became very determined and intentional that I will absolutely not, not spend one moment wasted because I don't know when my next one's coming, right? Tomorrow's not promised next week, next month. I I live in a very finite world. I understand clearly that the clock is ticking and I'm not going to waste one minute. And so that's a huge, I think from a, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, that is a, you know, again, Steve Jobs made a, made a comment that I thought was very, very good. It might even been in that same address where he said, one of the best blessings that you could ever have is
1: to remind yourself that you're going to die. Isn't it interesting that um, Benjamin Franklin, his biography is amazing. And uh, what he said that one out of every three thoughts he would have is this could be the last moment. And it's kind of the stoicism. Stoics have that where it's like constant recalibration of what the hell is important right now.
0: It is. There's nothing more profound that I could share with your listeners than that is that, we are conned into falling asleep at the will every day, right? Whether it is friends that are telling us, I'll oh, get to it tomorrow. Family, well, put your dreams off. You can probably do it next week, next month, next year. The media, the news, ripping away your power. Everything around you is designed to make you feel like you are not in control when the exact opposite is true. You are in control of this moment. And that's it. And if you realize the awesome power that that is, you will act. And you will act accordingly. And that the next moment's not promised. and that has been a huge, huge aha for me in my life because it, that's, that's the fuel, right? When you have the, the motivation, the systems, the process, the knowledge, the desire, and then you put on top of that, this willingness to not waste a moment of your life or build anything that doesn't matter, that doesn't bring value, that doesn't create impact, that doesn't allow you to spend more time with your kids and your, and your wife and your husband or whoever it is, you're, you are, you're lethal at that point. Because,
1: um, you know, it's not a matter of if you will be successful, it's just a matter of when. Have you ever read the book, Conversations with God? Yeah. Okay, yeah, we probably don't have another hour for this conversation, but it's this, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, kind of relativity, right? Like, I mean, to be able to understand the opposite makes you truly understand and appreciate the journey, which is what you're talking about, right? Like, Ah. then you become addicted to the, the feedback loops of it getting closer to who you are as an individual. I mean, it's like and that resonates. So your story resonates with a lot with me like that, because it, it just, it's not easy, but you kind of have an understanding of processing that moment in the time of, you know, how you want to be more of yourself. Well, it, here's the
0: irony of all of it. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, go for it, man. This is awesome. No, here's the irony of all of it is that when I started focusing on that, my businesses became infinitely more successful. By a factor, right? Uh, You know, what I figured out is that when I chase money, money runs. When I'm focused on the dollar, I can go create the dollars, but I can create them quickly and and in short, you know, in short order. When I start focusing on me, my family, the thing bringing value to the world, really trying to create impact in the world, the avalanche of success that ultimately landed in my lap and ultimately finding my passion and something that my purpose, I cannot even overestimate it, even if I tried. It is, it is, uh, it's shocking how profound these things that we've discussed kind of stacked up, right? Like, I understand time. I understand my core principles. I understand what really matters to me. And I execute in that box very efficiently.
1: So when you think about your uncle and you sitting there, obviously, you knowing that time is finite, like, what is your desire? I mean, if you're, if you're living life backwards from the eulogy, I mean, the fact that you talked about a conversation with God, I mean, like, what is it? Because if you're, okay, if you're okay at any moment that this is gone, what, how are you measuring the impact and the dent that you've made in the world?
0: Really simple. I mean, and I, and I think about it every day, right? Because I get asked a, a version of that question a lot. Like, you know, why do you, why? Clearly you got it all, you got a lot of stuff going on that, that's really successful. Why do you still go as hard as you go? It's important for me, for my kids to see me struggle. It's important for my kids to see me build. It's, in, it's important for me to demonstrate to them not talk about it, to demonstrate it, what it looks like to fight for a dream. And I know that that impact that that creates on their life because that's exactly what happened with with my father. That's what he did for me. Um, And as tough as that was, my father and I had a very tumultuous relationship most of my life. At the end of the day, that's a huge gift and I can't take it away from it. But I would gauge success by one simple measure. And again, this is what I think about. About two or three years ago, I had a, a couple different, Friends that passed away for a variety of circumstances, you know, heart attack, you know, car crash, whatever. And I remember there was one young lady, um, that was an amazing woman. And she meant enough to me that I got on a plane and I flew to Las Vegas to show my condolences to her family. Right. And I had that thought, like, have I done enough in the world? Have I created enough impact in the world where somebody would actually get on a plane and fly? Because in the other cases, the two or three other people, I didn't do that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I, I'm observing, like, why would I do that here and not do that there, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, that that this, if I was to pass today, have I done enough in the world? Have I created enough impact? Have I had enough impact on people's lives in a, in a profound way where they are compelled to take a break, get on a plane, fly in here, and make sure that they walked up to my little girls to shake their hands and say, your dad mattered. And any day that I don't think I'm up to that, that just means I got to keep going. I got to keep pushing, right? That's what I'm striving for. I'm striving to make sure that there's somebody out there that I was able to rattle their cage enough, give them enough information, enough insight, enough wisdom, enough tools that they feel like, man, this guy, whether I actually knew them or not, they felt so compelled that I have got to go and show my respect. And if I had the you know, opportunity to watch that from above, I, I would, that would be a situation where I would say, you know, that's a life well lived. You did good. You did okay.
1: The beauty of the world that we live in, too, Kent, is you don't need billions of dollars to do that. No. <laughs> what you just said its just just focusing on the right things. And that's like what you had said is we're, you know, we're conned into believing that we're not in control. But like you said, like... That's not the case at all. <laughs> it's just. No,
0: you, uh, and, and quite frankly, the biggest con, con artist of them all is you. you. You sit there and you tell yourself the self talk you have. You know, you realize the way your brain actually operates, it's the, it has your analytical side of your brain has got one function it is to survival. Make yeah. sure so you don't die. <laughs> so anytime you're trying to. Serve calories out, and don't die. <laughs> and anytime you're trying to get out of your comfort zone, do something that, that is extraordinary you know, that feels a little painful. You, we all have that voice in our head. Like, what the hell are you doing? Don't do this. What, what, what? Don't, back up, back up. You know, learning how to control that voice and understanding what it is and that fighting through that fear is really,
1: you know, it, it's everything. I, I just um, interviewed uh, Todd Herman from the, the Alter Ego Effect. I don't know if yeah. you read that book. Yeah. yeah. You got to make up your hero and put that on. it's <laughs> One of the most powerful words you can re- take out of your vocabulary is the word can't
0: or cannot, right? <laughs> just, just don't say it. Because you can do anything. The moment you know, when somebody sits there and tells me I can't, I'm like, no, let's just be honest with each other. More importantly, you be honest with yourself because you're the one that's always listening to the words coming out of your mouth. Just just replace that word with I choose not to, because that's really what you're doing. This is not, it's a choice. Like I can't is not real. I there are certain cases where it's certainly real. Like I can't go run a four minute mile. I get it, right? But could I absolutely choose to train for the next two years of my life and then get to a four minute mile? Probably. Yeah. Um, so, uh, to me, anything is possible. You just got to be honest with yourself using stupid, silly language saying, I can't, oh, I can't, I can't make the time to go get in, in shape. I can't make the time to do this. No, no, no. Replace it with the right words. Be honest with yourself. I'm choosing differently. I'm choosing not to do this. When you start doing that to guys like us, that doesn't feel good. Because now all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's the control I'm talking about. Like, yeah, yeah. oh, wait a minute. It's a lot easier to act like I'm not in control and be the victim than it is to actually own up that I'm in control and I get a choice here.
1: So that's uh this perfect lead into, as we're wrapping this up, I got two last questions. One is, what does the word intentional mean to you?
0: Uh, understanding the direction that you're trying to go or the destination you're trying to achieve. Starting with the end in mind and being very deliberate with
1: the steps and actions you take to get there. Nothing, nothing is chance. I love it. Yes. <laughs> Amen, brother. What is the best place for people to find your new book, all the information that you're out there, your training, your, all, all the stuff that you're doing?
0: I mean, I'm easy to find on all the social channels. You know, it's just at Kent Clothier, right? K E N T C L O T H I E R. Or you can go to kentclothier.com. Or if you want the, the, the new book, just go to get, grab. Kent'sbook.com, and you can grab it. It's right there. Available on Amazon,
1: baby. This has been an absolute blast, Kent. I, I can't think I can't thank you enough, man.
0: No, man. Thanks for having me. This has been great.
1: Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Kent. I can't tell you enough how much I enjoy his story because it shows that. Being intentional is insanely powerful. You can hear how happy he is with the journey that he's on. He's enjoying the journey every day because he knows he's on track to where he wants to go. The clarity is unbelievably hard to miss. However, he went through dark periods and had really intense events to get him that clarity. I suggest you don't wait for one of those events. Check out our Intentional Growth course. In first principle, we're going to go through exercises that helps you identify what do you want out of the business and why, and then we show you how to create a valuable business that gives you the highest probability of getting what you want from the business long term that creates the most amount of choices. Choices are the true freedom because you have the ability to pivot, get rid of the business, transfer it, get out of your role because you've built something that has sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow. Check it out. Go to Arcona.io. Go to the education tab. You can do it yourself. Do it with us on a one-on-one coaching basis or join one of the next virtual cohorts that are coming up. Thanks again for tuning in, and I will see you next week where we're going to be talking about phantom stock plans, executive bonuses, and how to tie your key executives into a value growth plan so that way everybody gets what they want.